Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. If certain people channeled even a fraction of their energy and dedication into noble pursuits, the world would be a better place. People like Alan Abel. Born in Zanesville, Ohio in August of 1924, Abel learned how to be successful from his father, who owned a small shop in town. To help boost his numbers, Mr. Abel would artificially limit sales of unsold items to give customers a sense that supply was low. And it worked every time. Allen carried that know-how with him to college and graduated from Ohio State University with a bachelor's in education. He wanted to shape the minds of America's youth, a dream that eventually expanded into helping corporate bigwigs improve their golf swing, quite literally. In the 1950s, he took a job teaching executives from Westinghouse about how different ballet positions could help them do better at their game, similar to how American football players took up ballet to be lighter on their feet during the game. In 1964 and 1968, Abel started a campaign to get a then-unknown grandmother from the Bronx elected president of the United States. Her name was Yetta Bronstein, a member of a political party called the Best Party. And with Abel's help, she ran on a comprehensive platform that seemed to appeal to almost everyone. Yetta promised to place a suggestion box outside the White House and put truth serum in the Senate water fountains. She also advocated for a national bingo night. Her campaign slogan? Vote for Yetta, and things will get better. In May of 1959, however, Abel undertook what could become the greatest project of his life and the reason he is still known to this day. It even earned him guest spots on television shows like CBS Evening News and The Mike Douglas Show. Abel became an activist for a cause near and dear to his heart, one that plagued the entire planet. He called it SENA, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals. You see, he believed that animals, from the smallest squirrel to the largest elephant, should be just as modest as humans were, which meant fitting them all for pants. Abel first published a piece in the Saturday Evening Post, outlining his plan before giving interviews and speaking directly to the people. For example, he wanted horses to wear Bermuda shorts, claiming a nude horse is a rude horse. Deers were to be clad in burlap sacks. He even referred to zoos as burlesque shows. Two years later, Abel and his wife Jean started picketing in front of the White House, where they called out President Kennedy for allowing his horses to wander around the grounds completely naked. A friend of Abel's named G. Clifford Prout also believed in the cause, and he willed $400,000 to a clothing fund for any creature that stands higher than four inches or is longer than six inches following his death. If all of this sounds absurd, well, that's because it was. Cena, Yetta Bronstein, and the ballet golf lessons were just some of the pranks pulled off by master hoaxer, Alan Abel. Cena had been a satirical commentary on how various books and movies were being censored in America. Abel had convinced comedian Buck Henry to play the part of G. Clifford Prout. His Yetta Bronstein campaign poked fun at the absurdity of American politics. Whenever a news outlet needed a soundbite for Yetta for their broadcast, it was his wife Jean who spoke to them as Yetta, And the picture on all of Yetta's campaign signs and posters, well, that was a photo of Alan's own mother, 
There would be more pranks, of course. In 1972, Abel pulled off a major stunt at the St. Regis Hotel in New York City. He wrapped himself in bandages like a living mummy and announced to the press that he was, in fact, noted recluse and aviator Howard Hughes, preparing to be cryogenically frozen until the stock market improved. Two days later, he came clean and let everyone in on the joke. Most of Abel's hoaxes preyed upon the nation's gullibility, specifically that of the news media. He held a press conference after the Watergate scandal broke and pretended to be the informant Deep Throat. Abel, as Deep Throat, was even offered a book deal worth $100,000 for his story. Sadly, in 1979, all of Abel's pranks and hoaxes caught up with him. The 55-year-old jokester had been skiing near Sundance Ski Lodge in Utah when he suffered a fatal heart attack. His widow phoned the New York Times to break the tragic news, which they published in his obituary on January 2nd of 1980. But the following day, Abel stood before a group of reporters to announce, in the paraphrased words of Mark Twain, The reports of my demise have been grossly exaggerated. The Times printed a retraction shortly thereafter. Alan Abel continued to pull fast ones on politicians and celebrities for the next 30 years, upon his actual death in 2018. Before we had The Daily Show and The Onion, we had Alan Abel, a man who spent his whole life raising Cain. Let's be honest, everyone has a bad day at work. They might hit traffic during the morning commute or misfile an important report. Maybe they even embarrass the boss in a big meeting. Whatever the case, these fleeting moments of minor drama are often forgotten about the following day. People move on. They go about their lives and continue doing their jobs just as before. Nobody has to worry about their silly mistakes being preserved for eternity. Right? Sadly, Kushim wasn't so lucky. Kushim was, according to a 5,400-year-old clay tablet, an administrator in the ancient Sumerian city of Uruk. Despite the idea of a desk job being a fairly modern concept, there were actually middle managers thousands of years ago, too. Kushim happened to be in charge of a grain silo and was responsible for tracking the barley that it received. He kept tabs on the shipments using clay tablets, on which he engraved the calculations of his own accounting system. The grain was tabulated in bowls, with one bowl equivalent to just over 1.3 gallons. Now, if he drew a bowl on its side and then added a dot, that equaled 9,000 bowls of barley, or about 11,400 gallons. And then the final totals were noted on the other side of the tablet. And he always signed his work Kushim, represented by the symbols Ku and Sim, etched into the top left corner of each tablet, above the tabulations. 77 such records were discovered in the Temple of Inanna in Uruk, located today in what is known as southern Iraq. Inanna was the goddess of love and war, first worshipped in ancient Sumer. The Babylonians, the Akkadians, and the Assyrians all referred to her as Ishtar. The tablets found in the temple bore the signature and title of Kushim Administrator and depicted a lot more than just the barley totals. They were also dated, with pictographs of a brick building, a stalk of the barley plant, and a small bottle at the end, which represented the final product. In other words, Kushim was tracking beer production. The discovery of these tablets was important for several reasons. For one, much of what had been analyzed already was comprised of artwork and tablets once owned by the ruling class. For a long time, scholars weren't interested in mundane transactional records. 
But Cushim's tablets were business records. That's the kind of unique proto-writing. They were a rare glimpse into administrative life in ancient Uruk by the people working on behalf of the rich. Second, literacy among the average citizens was not widespread. It was a skill reserved mainly for the elites and their scribes. Cushim didn't know how to write or do basic arithmetic. His system had been designed for himself simply to help him do his job better. Unfortunately, he wasn't entirely careful in his calculations. On one of the 18 surviving tablets, he had added up the barley and finally arrived at the total of 3,910 bowls. But that wasn't what he had written on the back. The opposite side of the tablet bore the number 3,895. And his supervisor, Nisa, had signed off on that total as well. So, where did those other 15 bowls go? Well, it's possible that Kushim had simply done the math wrong and that Nisa didn't know any better, just taking him at his word. But the other theory is more sneaky, that Kushim and Nisa were skimming a little barley off the top to make their own beer on the side. To be honest, we don't know for sure what caused the discrepancy, but we do know that Kushim made what may be the earliest known accounting error on record. Not only that, but the name Kushim itself is the oldest example of a person's name ever captured in writing. And that's what I love about this story, because sometimes our mistakes can be frustrating, while other times they can be more than a little curious. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.